morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Nathan Copeland. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights Baptist Church. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. This morning, as you've heard, we continue this Advent theme, the Advent series through Isaiah, and this week the theme is joy. Last week, Pastor Ryan reminded us from chapters 8 and 9 that even in the midst of darkness, there is hope because of this promised son who will establish God's righteous rule. In chapters 11 and 12 this week, we learn more about this coming king. Above all, we see that this king, this son of David, is greater than any king the world has ever known. And that his coming is cause for great joy. As we already read chapter 12, let's read chapter 11 together. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. and With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is that we get to gather this morning with your people around your holy word. It is a perfect 
pure word. It is your very revelation to us. So I pray you'd speak to us. We know your word proves true. So we pray you would speak to our hearts and bring us in line with the truth of your power, of your glory, of your salvation. Father, we pray all of this for our good, for our joy in Christ. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin with a bit of an odd question. What is God's favorite color? Some people say that's a silly question. It's a speculative question, kind of like those medieval philosophers who tried to figure out what, you know, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, you know, that kind of thing. But there was one great theologian named Jonathan Edwards who did grapple with this question, commenting, commenting on Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, he, uh, which describes a rainbow that had the appearance, of a, the appearance of an emerald. He said this, This exceeding lovely color green appears in nothing else so lively and lovely. Green is a most fit emblem of divine grace, not so dull as blue or purple, and yet most easy to the sight, more easy than the fiery colors of yellow and red. It's the color of all the grass, herbs, and trees, and growth of the earth, and therefore fitly denotes life, flourishing, prosperity, and happiness, which are often in Scripture compared to the green and flourishing growth of God's creation. As the benign influence of the sun on the face of the earth is shown by this color above all others, so is the grace and communication of God fitly represented by this color green. And people have been asking me lately, why do you keep wearing this vest? Well, this is it right here. And because my wife bought it for me and she thinks I look nice in it. So we'll go with that too. Now, obviously, Scripture never explicitly tells us what God's favorite color is. And there may be colors in heaven that we don't, you know, can't even imagine now. But I think Edwards might be onto something. Because God could have chosen any color to represent the vibrancy and joy of new life. Even in midwinter, the bleak midwinter, what do we do? We bring in evergreen trees and holly so that we can have represented around us the everlasting life and the hope of joy that is to come when new life breaks forth in the spring. If God's favorite color is green. This passage this morning might be further evidence of that. When we look back at the last two chapters of chapter 10, and of course there were no chapter breaks whenever Isaiah wrote this under the Holy Spirit's guidance and inspiration. But the last two verses of chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we see God threatens to chop down the mightiest trees, that is, the mightiest people, the mightiest rulers and kingdoms, who refuse to bow to him. Even those who belong to his covenant people, even these sons of David, these Davidic kings, if they do not repent, they will be brought down and destroyed along with the pagan nations. But here in Isaiah 11 and 12, we read the promise that God will not destroy completely. Even while many kings from David's line are brought low, God promises a new David that he will shoot up from the humble root of Jesse. This greater David, this ultimate son of Jesse, will succeed and conquer in all the ways that David and his sons had failed. This branch is the Messiah, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. His advent, his appearance is cause for great joy. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah is inviting the world to find joy in this king. Specifically in this text, as it unfolds before us, there are four aspects of Jesus' rule on display here that I want to draw out. These, these aspects of his rule, I think, spur our hearts to find joy and contentment in him. The first is this. We find joy in the king's perfection. His perfection. God's promise to David back in 2 Samuel was that one of David's sons would sit on the throne of Israel, ruling over God's people forever. And of course, David started off pretty well until Bathsheba showed up. Solomon had all kinds of promise, but he too fell into idolatry. And then from there, it just gets kind of worse and worse. Unfortunately, the story of David's sons is one of some good kings, some not-so-good kings, and a lot of really not-so-good kings. You can read all about it in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And so what happens? The kingdom falls. Israel in the north, Judah in the south are invaded and taken over by enemies because of their sin and disobedience. But into that darkness and depression, Isaiah 11.1 1 speaks this word of hope and joy, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, one of the first questions is, why Jesse? Who even is Jesse? Where does he appear in the story? Well, if you read the book of Ruth, it's a beautiful little story about this poor, you know, Moabite woman, but it just connects to the whole sweep of redemptive history. If you read the very end of Ruth, chapter 4, 18 to 22, we see this genealogy, which all these genealogies are so important. They're tracing the line of the promised one. So these are the generations of Perez, it says in Ruth 4.18. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz. Right. So there's, there's where the story is in Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So why Jesse? Why not just say the son of David, like, like the Bible often does? Well, I think what's going on here is that this is not just the son of David. This king, in a sense, is prior to David. This king is greater than even Israel's greatest king. This Davidic king will be what David should have been. This king will be perfect. The real difference what really makes this new son of Jesse perfect is found in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. All the other kings in David's line, they were anointed with oil as a symbol of God's spirit anointing them for ministry. But this king is the real deal. He will be anointed not just with oil as a symbol, he will be anointed with the Spirit of God. And not just for a moment, for some specific task, like is often the case of these characters in the Old Testament. Jesus is anointed permanently for the entirety of his perfect ministry. The Gospel of Luke emphasizes this 
aspect of Jesus' person and, and ministry. I'll just blow through this quickly. Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Luke 4, we read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And of course, he, he overcame sin and temptation. Later in chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Later in chapter 4, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So nothing like this green shoot from the stump of Jesse has ever been seen before in Israel. There was excitement and joy surrounding Jesus because he's perfect. No one ever spoke like this man, people said. And he's perfect because he is a man perfectly anointed with the spirit of the living God. Just look at the rest of verse 2 and into verse 3. Notice these spirit-wrought perfections. The Davidic king possesses. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This leader, this king, is taking all the qualities of Israel's greatest leaders and he just takes them all into himself and they're just all rolled up into one perfect, ultimate leader. He possesses wisdom and understanding like Joseph. Joseph admitted many times that the Lord alone had the power to reveal dreams. Jesus is that revealer. He possesses counsel and might like Solomon. Solomon was very wise and mighty, but he had a weakness for foreign women. Jesus, however, is faithful to his bride. He has sealed the covenant with his blood and it will not be broken. He possesses knowledge and fear of the Lord like all Israel's greatest prophets. The prophets merely received and delivered the word. Jesus is the perfect word of God incarnate. He delights in worshiping God like David. Of course, David delighted in the fear of the Lord until he delighted more in Bathsheba. But the Lord Jesus walked through this world perfectly without even a hint of sin. Again, he's like all these great leaders, only perfect. With all these qualities, Jesus, the righteous one, is the one man qualified to rule the whole world. The one man. In biblical terms, this perfection is expressed with the term righteousness. He is perfectly righteous. To be righteous is to be right in God's eyes. And Jesus always did what was right in God's eyes. But when you read the Bible carefully, it's clear that the righteousness of God cuts in two ways. It cuts in two directions, which we see here in Isaiah 11. Here we see both the saving righteousness of God and the judging righteousness of God. In verses 3 and 4, we see the saving righteousness of God on display as he rules 
the world on behalf of those who are poor and meek. This righteous judge will decide in your favor if you are humble, if you are meek before him, if you will trust his word. Jesus put it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. What an amazing promise. And only he can fulfill that promise in his saving righteousness. I remember when I was a kid, a friend of mine had a t-shirt. I'll never forget this t-shirt. He wore it all the time, as middle school kids are wont to do. And it said, the meek shall inherit the earth, but they will not get the ball. And I think it was like advertising and one or Nike or something. And later on, I was thinking about that when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3 says to, to those who trust Christ, who are one with Christ, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's what the meek of the earth shall inherit. We'll inherit the earth, all of it, and not just the sin-scarred earth. He will come to renew the earth in his saving righteousness. But picking up in verse 4, we read of the judging righteousness of God. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So again, on the one hand, with his saving righteousness, he lifts up those who are poor and needy. Those who are meek and who trust in him. On the other hand, in his judging righteousness, he will bring down the haughty and the proud, those who trust themselves, those who stand against his truth. So I hope you understand. Every one of us here today, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we deserve nothing but the judging righteousness of God. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. We all deserve to be killed by the breath of this righteous judge's mouth. But God made a way that you can enjoy, that we can all enjoy his saving righteousness without compromising his judging righteousness. Paul's language from Romans 3 shows us how at the cross God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is to say, both righteous judge and savior. That's who Jesus is. And we see that love and that mercy and that righteousness and truth meet at the cross of Christ. That is what is so good about this righteous king that's what's so good about the good news god is pleased with us not so much because we're all that pleasing but because joined to jesus christ we can be perfect in god's sight if you are going to stand before the holy god you want perfect righteousness you don't want to stand before him and say you know i did my best and i did okay and i did some good and i did some bad this is a God who is holy, holy, holy. But praise God, in Christ, the, uh, the old song says, there is no seam in that garment. 
all my rags to hide. Jesus and all his righteousness are mine. When the monk turned reformer, Martin Luther, understood this truth, he said it was like a gate opened into paradise for him. He said, if I thought God could be pleased with me, I would stand on my head for joy. That's the joy that this king brings. Joy has dawned upon the world, promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled. Hope for every nation. Not with fanfare from above, not with scenes of glory, but a humble gift of love. Jesus born of Mary. Seek your joy in the king's perfection. Second, we find joy in the king's peace. The result of this king's righteous leadership will be complete, radical, worldwide peace. We read verses 6 through 9 there. If you just look back through 6 through 9, you see some of the most remarkable and memorable and familiar imagery from Isaiah. He pictures complete opposites of aggressiveness and helplessness, of predators and prey, living together in complete peace. This is the reality that Christ alone can bring when his reign comes in fullness. And one of the difficult questions in reading prophecies like this is knowing when exactly this reign will come in fullness. The peace described here is so unlike anything we have ever known in this world that is so red in tooth and claw that when interpreters read this, they begin to wonder, what, what exactly is this? When will this happen? Some interpreters believe that this is a description of Christ's millennial kingdom. The word millennium comes from Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of a thousand-year period when Christ will reign physically on earth in a time of perfect peace before he returns to set up the new heavens and new earth, that final state where only righteousness dwells. These pre-millennial interpreters believe that this description of Christ's reign in Isaiah 11 fits into that millennial period. I wish we had time to get into all these things. There is much to commend that view. Other people believe this is a description of the reign of Christ in the new heavens and new earth. You can read Isaiah 65 where it says, Behold, I make new heavens and new earth. And there are similar descriptions here uh, as we find here in chapter 11. That is the, that this is the eternal state where only righteousness dwells and perfect peace prevails. Again, we don't have time to parse these things out this morning but there's much to commend that view as well but here's what I want to say either way here's what we know for sure Jesus literally reigns right now as the resurrected and ascended Lord of all Jesus is currently seated at the Father's right hand and he's seated not because he's tired he's seated because as he said from the cross it is finished. This future is ours. This reality will come to pass. His reign has been inaugurated. One day it will be consummated and will result in a literal, perfect 
peace when all sin and all rebellion and all pain and all hospitals and all funeral homes and all everything that's evil and sad will be completely and totally done away with forever. Let me tell you, that is cause for literal joy in our hearts this morning. Every time we think about this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this setting our minds on who he is and what he has accomplished and what he promises to accomplish. As Pastor Ryan said last week, we have faith in his promises because of what he has already done. He has always been faithful. I tell you, talking about peace, I can't help but think about my dad. My dad, some of you have met him. He was, he is, a hippie. And the hippies were all about peace. And as a teenager, I was very into uh, rock and roll music. I was, I was very young and immature back then. And I was asking questions all the time about the music and the bands and the music festivals back then. And I was just sort of enamored with the 60s and the whole scene. And I remember one time he found this documentary video on the Altamont Speedway. Let me get this right. The Altamont Speedway Free Festival which was billed as the Woodstock of the West. And it was all about peace and free love and this great music. And so everybody came together. I think there were around 30,000 people there. No, sorry, 300,000 people there. But what transpired was not peaceful. The uh, promoters had hired the Hell's Angels to do security. And... The, the payment that the Hells Angels received was $500 worth of beer. That's all they asked for. Two fans were killed in a hit-and-run accident. One was drowned in an irrigation canal. Scores were injured. Numerous cars were stolen. Untold thousands, which, you know, in those days, thousands was a lot of dollars of damage was done. Most tragic of all, one young man got high on methamphetamines, charged the stage with a revolver, and was quickly stabbed to death by a member of the motorcycle gang. The thing I remember most about the documentary was the voice of Mick Jagger. He had this swagger to him, you know, this front man, rock star thing. But when he began to see this, his voice changed and he became very fearful. And I remember, you know, I can't do his accent very well, but brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, please, he said. We're going to split, man. If these guys don't quit, beat, you know, quit beating everybody up. And you know, for all of his power and all of his seeming influence, he was totally helpless. He couldn't do anything in that moment of just terror and death. I would say that the hippie movement had some ideals that were good, that they were aiming at, but they were never going to get there. Because they were so naive. They were celebrating sin Sin actually is the problem. So the hippies were never going to achieve lasting peace because, you know the bumper sticker, no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. I think a hippie probably came up with that. That's essentially, by the way, what verse 9 says. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Strive to know more of Christ. 
you will know more of peace. In your marriage, instead of demanding that your spouse love you like you want to be loved, when you want to be loved, instead, seek more of Christ. In turn, you'll be willing and able to give love. And love will grow. In your conflict with that parent whose kid plays ball with your kid, instead of seeking to be right and show how right you are, seek to show how great Jesus is. That really his honor and fame is what we're after, not these little ball players. In your anxiety over that job interview, over that school exam, over whatever the latest crisis is, instead of trying to control everything, start with prayer. Ask God to take control. Ask Christ to take control, first and foremost, of your heart. Pray that way. Fight the fight of faith in prayer that he would control your heart and give you the right perspective. In the guilt you feel, don't try to make it up to God. Don't try to do more good stuff and then try to come to him. Just come to him. He will cleanse. He offers peace between you and God and between you and other people through the blood of his cross. Find your joy in the king's peace. Third, we find joy in the king's pursuit. Pursuit. In verse 11, the Lord is pursuing his covenant people, the remnant of Israel who've been dispersed across the world. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Then we read of all these places where God is reaching out and pursuing. Isaiah 59.1 expresses this worldwide pursuit like this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save. In other words, there's no place on earth where God will not go. He's unwilling to go, unable to go, to rescue, to redeem his people. And as we read down through verses 12 through 16, we begin to see Isaiah is giving us a picture of a second exodus. Exodus, the way out, the way out of slavery. Just, just look what it says there, 12, 16. I'll just summarize. The people of God will plunder their enemies. The Lord will destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and lead the people across in sandals. That's because it's dry there. By a highway for the remnant, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You know, the first exodus under Moses went pretty well. But then there were some problems. You may remember there was some complaining. You may recall Moses himself didn't even make it to the promised land because he took matters into his own hands. But here the Messiah leads a second exodus that is much more successful. Verse 13, the old jealousies are done away with. Old divisions healed. Verse 14, the people suffer zero casualties of war as they're united to fight and be victorious over the most stubborn enemies like the Philistines. Verses 15 through 16, the Messiah leads the people by a highway of miracles that exceeds even the miracles performed by Moses. But here's something else. Here's another reason why this is a greater exodus. The nations are included. The nations are included in this way out of slavery. Look again at verse 10. And then verse 12, verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. 
Jesus Christ reigns to pursue the nations. What is it specifically about the Messiah that draws people in? What is this flag and this banner that he waves that is calling the nations home to himself? I believe it's the cross. If you read John chapter 12, it's kind of a turning point in the Gospel of John, where up to this point there's been a lot of discussion among these Jewish disciples, and then all of a sudden there are some Greeks who want to come and talk to Jesus. And what happens? Andrew and Philip begin to talk about it, and they're thinking, this is kind of weird. These Greeks are showing up, but let's go talk to Jesus about it. And when Jesus hears of it, he says this amazing thing. In John 12, 24 and 25, he says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then down in verse 32, he says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The cross, that is what is signaling the nations to come home, to come to Jesus. The cross, this symbol of suffering and death, becomes a symbol of life and joy and peace forevermore for all who believe. The Jews first and then for the Gentiles. You know, I'm a dad. Sometimes I invite my kids to Come back home, let's just put it that way. And I use all kinds of techniques, sometimes intimidation, sometimes threatening. Jesus woos us by self-sacrificial love. He loves us. Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. And where do we see that love displayed most clearly? It's on the cross where he gave himself for us. And as believers who've been saved by the cross, we have a role to play. In lifting high the cross. Dr. John Piper said recently, the 20th century was a century of the greatest expansion of the Christian church in the history of the world. While Europe and Canada and Australia experienced dramatic losses through secularization, South America, Africa, and Asia exploded in unprecedented ways. Whether America will follow the other Western powers into the irrelevance of secularization and fall away from God's purpose for the nations, I don't know. God owes us nothing. But this I do know, that while the church in America has any strength, we should pour ourselves out for the nations, the unreached peoples of the world. We're in the days of great prophetic fulfillment. The signal of the shoot of Jesse, Jesus, crucified and risen, is being lifted up among the nations. They are streaming to the Savior of the world. I pray that we will be among those who with the last ounce of energy will lift up this signal for the nations. There is nothing more joyful, more life-giving than giving yourself to a purpose that cannot fail. And this future with this Davidic king will come to pass. We should be lifting high the cross among Jews and Gentiles from every nation. This is a sure path to solid, lasting joy. And especially when you realize you are part of these nations, that he is pursuing you. Find joy in the king's pursuit. And then finally, we find joy in the king's propitiation. Now right there, you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Nathan, I know that was a cute little alliteration thing, 
The word propitiation is not here. And besides, what does propitiation even mean? And I'm glad that you asked. It's true. The word propitiation is not here in chapter 12, but the concept is right here. Chapter 12, verse 1, where we read, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Listen, when you read Isaiah, especially chapters 1 through 10, there's a lot for God to be angry about. And when you get to chapter 11, and he's threatening with you know, bringing people down and chopping down these mighty trees that stand against him and against his righteousness, that's what you expect. You expect the judging righteousness of God. But instead, you see this little green shoot. And you think, wait a minute, what's happening here? And it's new life. How in the world can God be just and offer this kind of mercy and forgiveness and salvation for sinners who have done all of this mess? Well, the answer is, he offered his very own son. He offered himself. God is my salvation, Isaiah 12, 2. He offered a propitiatory sacrifice. That's, that's just a Bible word that means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus was that lightning rod that took God's wrath on himself so that we could escape. So that we could be offered this life and forgiveness and freedom. Listen, God's wrath must fall. He is a holy, righteous judge. And it did fall on Christ at the cross. You remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross? He said, Father, if it be your will, please let this cup pass from me. He's talking there about the cup of God's wrath being poured out. That's the language of the Old Testament. These nations are going to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom. And that's what Jesus did for his enemies. For sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. People like us. That's the propitiation. That's who Jesus is. So that's what Jesus prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, Father, but yours be done. So he went to the cross. He drank the cup. He changed places with us. He took our sin and he gave us his royal righteous robes. He, he took our guilt and gave us goodness and mercy. All the days of our lives. He took our death and gave us life. So that's what 1 John chapter 2 says. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then here it is. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Even in Oklahoma. Praise God. This is such good news. It's no wonder that this chapter ends. And really this is kind of the capstone of the first major section of Isaiah. It's no uh, wonder this section ends with joyful praise. You can just look down. Verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Verse 4. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord. Let this be known in all the earth. Verse 6. Shout and sing for joy. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. 
when we realize all that Christ has done, all that he has given to us, we cannot help but respond with joyful praise. And this joy is not just for the end of time, it's for all time. It's not just for our final day when we know we have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. It is for today. It is for every day. This good news of Jesus in your place is the place where true joy can be found. Now let's be honest for a second. Some people think it's wrong to seek joy. But the Bible offers us invitation after invitation. Just read the Psalms. It invites us to seek joy. The problem is we seek joy in the wrong places. Can I just tell you the secret to life right now? Here's the secret to life. Are you ready? From Pastor Nathan. Seek joy in God. Seek your deepest satisfaction in God. When you wake up in the morning, you're going to be seeking joy. I promise you. You're going to be seeking it in family or in breakfast or in the fun vacation you're planning or maybe in your job and the notoriety and the money and the success. You're going to seek it in good health. That's why you're going to you know, eat oatmeal, I guess, instead of you know, cinnamon rolls. Even oatmeal is a seeking of joy. So you can have lower cholesterol or something. We seek Joy in a thousand other things that are not God and are therefore not designed to offer you complete, total joy. The joys of creation are pointers to the ultimate joy of knowing the Creator who gave us all these good gifts to enjoy for His glory. We all know, some of us more acutely than others, that trying to drink from the wells of this world, it doesn't work. They're dirty. The wells of sin are laced with poison. It's not going to satisfy all the wells you can possibly make on your own. I don't care how successful you are or how long you live. They're all going to run dry very quickly. But there are other wells. God's wells, where true joy is found. As we walk through the weary, dry desert of life, God does not intend to give us just a few drops of his grace and joy. He intends for us to live out Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That is quite an image. This is not a little trickle of joy from a little kind of dirty well these are wells of salvation that we are meant to splash and play and gurgle and drink deeply from and give away joy to others because we know this well is never going to run dry with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation plural I had never thought of that before till this week Dr. Ray Ortland says how many wells are there what kind of different wells are there? The well of love, the well of delight, the well of healing, wells of every grace and favor. We will enjoy every one. Do you need love? Could you use some healing? Could you use some delight 
and joy in your life, here's where it's found. But listen, the gate that we go through to get to those wells is the gate of propitiation. The joy of green, vibrant life is only possible through the red of Christ's blood shed on Calvary. And that's what Christmas is about. Isaiah 12, 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. All of this, all this perfection and peace, this relentless pursuit, this propitiation to bear our wrath that we deserve, all of this stems from one humble man, a little baby, tiny, helpless, a little green branch shooting up from this stump that has been chopped down. The King, Jesus Christ, is what Christmas is about. And of course, there are many joyful aspects to this season. But the ultimate joy, try this season to, to realize that the joy in all the joys is knowing this King as your King, as your Savior. In his presence, the psalmist says, is fullness of joy forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as the psalmist said, we have trusted in your steadfast love. Our hearts shall rejoice in your salvation. We shall sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with us. So we pray that we shall rejoice even today, even in this moment, as we have an opportunity to sing together. But every day of this Christmas season, there, there are so many blessings, there's so much joy, but there are also so many stressors, there's so many potential moments of, of conflict and hurt. We just pray that we shall rejoice every day in your salvation. Make this church a more joyful people, make our homes places of true joy, and may we spread that joy and tell others of Christ for your glory. Amen.